listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Well, last week we finished out Revelation chapter 1. Uh, the title was Identification, Location, and Instruction. A pretty simple title as we studied Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I want to do kind of a quick recap, just kind of ties into where we're at, and keep us going in that motion. We identified the author, we looked at who John was, the Apostle John, but in that we, we talked about a challenge of knowing who we are in Christ, who are you in Christ, and that's an important thing because knowing who you are in Christ helps you in the location that you're currently at, the circumstances you're currently in, even the state where you are living, um, us knowing who we are in Christ helps us in that location, to be present and accounted for where God has us. We talked about uh, stopping, not, you know, we, we need to quit looking for a way out of where we're at. We all like that exit. Like, I just want to get out of here. I don't like this space. Lord, get me out of here. Get me into something new. But the idea is that we've got to pause. We need to be still and know that he is God. And we need to say to him, Lord, I'm here for a reason. Help me understand. Help me be obedient. Help me not miss what it is that you are doing in this moment, in this time, in this space. Then we talked about John's location, Patmos, a prison island. I was talking with somebody before first service, and when we think about being on an island somewhere, our view is sandy beach and a palm tree, and there's John sitting down, leaning back against a tree, writing the book of Revelation. That's not what it was by any way, shape, or form. But in that, we see that God is going to use you wherever you are, even in the worst of locations. You see, Patmos was a big, giant rock of an island. There were no rivers. There were no trees, vegetation. They couldn't plant anything. So you think about the fact that that was written there. We need to be content where God has us, not complacent, but content. Not fighting against it, not looking for something bigger and better, always looking for the better thing, There's a reason God has us where we are today. There's a reason that God has us on this planet as we went through a pandemic that swept around the world. Like we don't see purpose in that. But God has us here for a reason. He wants us to engage in our faith. There are people who need hope. So God can and use you, can can and will use you in the midst of your struggles and your pain. He can also use you if everything is perfect right now. Maybe life is good for you. Nothing's wrong. Everything's easy. God can use you in those times. Don't be complacent. Don't just kind of sit back and rest. You still need to engage. But he will also use us in the midst of our our discomfort. And we looked at the instructions given to him. You see, when Jesus instructs us, it's done with authority. And as he instructs you, as you hear his word, as you hear his voice, it's done with authority And he's going to empower you to to complete what it is that you are to do. 
The reason people burn out in ministry is because we've taken on too much stuff. We've taken on more than God wants us to do. Then we get burnt out, and then we don't want to do anything in ministry. Like, I'm done with it all. The reality is we've got to make sure that we're paying attention and doing what it is that God wants us to do and nothing more. Are you allowing the Lord to work on you? Are you allowing him to fill you and to clean you and to trim the wick, so to speak, as we talked last week about the lamps? It's a good reminder for us to look beyond our circumstances. Sometimes when things are happening right here, we can't see past it, right? When we're struggling through things, we're grinding through things, we can't look past whatever that problem is. Well, we've got to have vision beyond the circumstances where we're seeking his face. See, we have a tendency to do what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They, they wanted to see his hands. Show us another miracle. Show us another trick. Prove to us who it is that you are. The reality is that when we're going through stuff, we need to be seeking his face. When we seek his face, his hands follow. His hands do amazing things and meet, meets us at that point of need in his timing and with his grace and mercy. The reality is that he is preparing you right now for all that he has prepared for you. And he will empower you to complete what he has started in your life. He's not done yet. You guys, he's going to be working on us until the day we're in heaven standing in front of him or on our face in front of him, right? He's going to continually be working on us. Now we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be going into the churches. We're in Revelation 2, 1 through 7 is our main text this morning. Powering through life without love. And we're in the seven churches. The seven churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3 are literal churches in John's time as he's writing this book. And though these letters are written to them specifically, there's great depth and meaning spiritually for Christians. There's, there's depth and meaning within these letters for us today. Remember back in Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. How many of you think that end times is near? Like we're, we're approaching it rapidly. Things are amping up a little bit even. But the idea is that we don't just read or hear what we're studying, but we pay attention to it and we respond to it obediently, listening to what the Lord is telling us. So the first purpose of the letters was to communicate to the literal churches and to meet the needs that they had at the time. The second purpose is to reveal seven different types of individuals or churches throughout history and instruct them in God's truth. And then there's a possible third purpose in the seven churches. Some say to foreshadow seven different periods of history within the church. The problem with this view is that each of the seven churches describe, uh, describes issues that could fit the church at any time in history. So although there might be some truth to that representing um, seven eras, there's too much speculation. As we look at all these things, we don't want to get caught up like we had talked about and the introduction to Revelation, we don't want to get caught up with the speculation or the conspiracy or Hollywood's version of what this book is about. Our focus should be on what the message, uh, what message God has for us through his word given to us through these seven churches. I have the seven churches in a brief description for us to look at. This is what we're going to study over the next seven weeks. Uh, Ephesus, the church that had forsaken its first love. Smyrna, the church that would suffer persecution. Pergamum, 
the church that needed to repent, Thyatira, the church that had a false prophetess, Sardis, the church that had fallen asleep, Philadelphia, the church that had endured patiently, and then Laodicea, the church with a lukewarm faith. Now today, every pastor in every church wants to be seen as the church in Philadelphia. And I've had people ask me, <laughs> who are we as a church? Which of these is us? Um, they want me to say, Philadelphia, of course. We don't have any issues. We're patiently enduring. I think we're doing pretty good as a church, but I think a little bit of a few of these churches is actually in us. And as we study this, you're going to see those areas that we need to tighten up and engage as the body of Christ so we can be more effective as a church. Each of the letters, as we go through them, have a similar structure and address to a particular congregation, right? Naming out the, the cities, the, the churches, an introduction of Jesus, a statement regarding the condition of the church and the verdict from Jesus regarding that condition, a command from Jesus to the church, and then a general exhortation to all Christians, and then ending with a promise of reward. So what is the application? The state of each church should really cause us to pause, to reflect on our personal lives, to to cause us to pause and, and reflect on our walk with the Lord. The, the exhortation is that you listen carefully to the instruction that Jesus gives each church. So we're going to read our whole text before we get into the full brunt of the, of the message. So let's read Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Character counts. Like, who are we? What you do in life on a daily basis matters. It makes an impact. It makes an impact on others. It makes an impact on your faith. It makes an impact in eternity as well. In Revelation 2.1, to the angel, we discussed uh, last week in Revelation 1.20, the angel might be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In some way, uh, it also may be the, the church itself. Um, the angel represents the church, but it's better written just as a representative. It's not just a representative. It is to the whole church, right? That's, that's what the letter is for. It's not just for one person or a representative. Clark states that I consider what is spoken to this angel as spoken to the whole church. That is not a particular state that is described, but states of the people in general that are under his care. 
So the, fo the focus is the church. We look at this church in particular. In ancient times, the city was very well known, equally famous in the church realm. Paul taught and ministered for three years there. Can you imagine having that as your pastor? Come on, Paul. I want to come hear that. Acts 19 and 20. Aquila, Priscilla, Apollo served there in Ephesus. Acts 18. I'm a disciple of Paul's, Timothy. It was his first work uh, there in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1.3. Uh, and according to historic tradition, that is extra biblical text, the apostle John ministered there as well. So can you imagine that lineup for preachers? <laughs> that would be awesome to send under that teaching and to hear from them. So they had some meat uh, that, that they were taught. They had a basis of, uh, that they could grow from in their faith. So amazing teachers of the word. The other thing to think about is Ephesus, the capital city of the Roman province in Asia, was a significant trade center. It was located near a harbor at the mouth of the Caister River in Western Asia Minor. The city lay in a long, fertile valley. Major roads connected Ephesus to all other significant cities in Asia Minor. It was a hub. Ephesus was known for its amphitheater. It was the largest in the world. It was designed to hold 50,000 spectators. However, this religious and cultural and economic center for the region had a dark side. Ephesus was also the location of the great temple Artemis, or Diana. Built in 550 BC, the temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it had 127 pillars to support the roof that were 60 feet high each. When I look at buildings and structures, I would love to go visit all these places because I'm a builder kind of guy. I like to use power tools. They didn't have that. And you look at those things that they built and how they did it. I'm always amazed. Sorry, that's a rabbit trail. Much of Ephesian industry was related to the temple itself. They were craftsmen. They sold shrines. They sold household images of the goddess. And so worshipers could take them on trips so they could take them home and have their idols with them. The Ephesians were proud of their religious her heritage and all the legends that came with it. Longnecker said that the temple of Artemis was also a major treasury and bank of the ancient world. Merchants and kings, even cities, made deposits and where their money could be kept safe under the protection of the deity. I hope they had a little bit more security than that. Gabaline said Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Here many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. So you could see what the church had to have been battling while they were there. Ephesus is a godless and immoral city and culture. And in that, I pause and I kind of look at our own city and I wonder, how does our city and our state and our country compare? Those things that we just listed are pretty rampant in the rest of our world even right here in Lakewood, Colorado. There's the same underlying spirit of deception. It's very much alive today. But so is the spirit of the Lord. And God is moving. God is using his people to make an impact. And there's a description of Jesus in the last part of verse one. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden 
lampstands. This takes us back to Revelation 1 and the opening of John's vision, emphasizing the authority of Jesus within the church. It is he who holds the seven stars. It is his presence in the midst of the golden lampstands. This is how it should be in every church. Jesus is central. Remove him and you removed the very purpose of us even getting together. Again, I will tell you, there are, there are churches in our city and in our state that have removed Jesus as the center of what they do. That is no longer a church. That is no longer the body of Christ. So probably one of the most important questions for you this morning is, is Jesus central in your personal life? Is he at the center of everything that you do every day? You see, the centrality of Jesus in your life impacts not just you, but your family, not just your family, but your church. Like it makes an impact across that. We're gonna come back to that in a little bit. The word holds is an ancient Greek word meaning that Jesus holds the church securely. He's holding them fast. They cannot be taken from him. They cannot be shaken without his involvement. The churches belong to him. The churches don't belong to the leaders. They don't belong to the people. He holds them. Or in one sense, yes, this is our church. We surrender it to him, to his headship, Jesus' leadership. Without Jesus in the midst of what we do, we fail. We might move along as an organization, but eventually it will fail. Because what we are about is Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Sometimes we need to remember as we walk through the day that Jesus knows everything about us and everything that we're doing. We tend to dismiss the fact that he is God and he is involved in our, day, our daily lives. You know, every Christmas we sing about how Santa knows if you've been good or bad, right? So be good for goodness sake, right? But the reality is, spoiler alert, I'm sorry if you didn't tell your kids that Santa's not real, I just did. It's actually Jesus who knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your heart. He knows the intent that you have. Right? It's him who has that. And he's saying to the church of Ephesus, I know the deeds, verses two and three, your toil, your perseverance, that you can't tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not, and you found them out to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. See, he sees them. He sees them. He knows what's going on. Jesus looked at the church. He knew its condition. It was no mystery to him. And there might be sin or corruption hidden even in a congregation, even in our congregation, but it's not hidden to Jesus. He sees it all. He penetrates the heart and mind of each one of us and knows exactly what's going on. He would say the same thing to us today, both as individuals and a congregation. I know your works. Jesus knows what we've been doing. Here in this verse, or in these two verses, he knows their good works. Hey guys, I see you're working hard. You're being diligent. You're being faithful. Spurgeon said though that there are also working Christians who do not approach to laboring Yet a lifetime of such work as theirs would not exhaust a butterfly. And when a man works for Christ, he should work at it with all his might. 
We've talked about that before. As a Christian, we need to be all in. You can't just be passive. Passive Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I got my ticket. I'm just waiting for the train to come get me. No, we've got to be engaged wherever we're at, ministering and being obedient. Jesus knew what this church did right. They worked hard for the Lord. They had a godly endurance. Uh, patience is a, a Greek ancient word, um, hupomone. It means steadfast endurance. In this sense, the church of Ephesus was rock solid. They endured. They were steadfast. The Ephesian church pursued doctrinal purity Paul had warned the Ephesians back in Acts 20, 29 through 31. It says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You see, there's Paul's going in and telling them, guys, you got to watch out for this. You got to make sure that you're on point doctrinally. And so they're following that. And from this commendation of Jesus, we know that the Ephesians took Paul's warning seriously. They listened to him. Nothing has changed for us as a church today in our society. We've got to intentionally and consistently test those who say they're a messenger from God especially those that say they have a special word from the Lord. It must line up exactly with God's word because we have to remember, the devil is a deceiver. He's a liar. That word may look good, it may sound good, but if it doesn't line up with God's word, it's false. Don't receive it. We've talked about uh, being a Berean, both in our study in John and in the book of Acts. Be a Berean, meaning that you open up the scripture on your own. You look at it. You study it. You ask for the discernment of the Holy Spirit and look at the scripture for yourself. Make sure that you know and understand who you're listening to. I've told you before, don't just take my word for it. <laughs> I don't care who comes on this pul pulpit or on this platform, you open up your Bible. And the first person that comes up here and says, I just put your Bible away. I'm going to tell you what it says today. Mm -hmm. There's a door right there at the top of the stairs. We'll help them out that door. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to what is being taught. And that goes for podcasts because we have access to all kinds of stuff, don't we? Podcasts and videos, YouTube and all those different things. Make sure that you're a Berean. Make sure that you're studying God's word and that it's lining up. What they are saying is lining up with God's word. The greater the evil, the more deceptive its cloak. We know as we get into the end times, those deceptions are going to get even bolder. Spurgeon said, this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish that some of the churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man be clever, he may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited in the mouth of hell, and it will actually go down with some. People are believing it when they hear it, and they don't question it. So keep your, your eyes and your ears open. Keep your Bible open and engage in your faith. Don't just take someone's word for it. How many of you, um, you know what you need to do? Like you, you start a diet or you get a budget in place or, or you get a schedule in place or your devotionals, right? I'm gonna, five o'clock every morning, I'm, I'm gonna do my devotions. I'm gonna, and, and how, how many of you do it for a few days and you do really well? And then it kind of tapers. 
pretty soon it's gone again, right? We, we tend to get weary. We tend to give up, right? So the idea we're talking about here is that Jesus is pointing out how strong they are in their faith, that they're persevering, that they're enduring. How many of you like that word, endure? I love to endure. We don't like that word because it kind of brings some pain, doesn't it? No, to endure means you stay. You hold steady in what you're doing and what God has told you to do. And that with them, they were the constant flushing out of false teachers, and they were staying on point and true to doctrine, and, and it seemed that they had faith. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Are there any weary people in the house today? <laughs> we get weary, don't we? I'm weary. I'll admit it. But we keep pressing in, and we endure, and we rely on him. The church of Ephesus continued doing these things without becoming weary. They showed a godly perseverance that we should imitate. But all outward appearances, this was a, a, a solid church. You, you look at them and you see that they worked hard. They had great outreach. They, they protected the integrity of the Bible. They did as Paul said and that we should take a hold of as well. In Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart of doing good for in due time we'll reap if we do not grow Weary, hold steady, keep the faith, keep walking, don't give up. We all have work to do, work to do that Jesus himself has given us. And, and at times it can feel overwhelming. It, it feels like the, whatever we're going through is just never ending, never ending. You know, and I, I'm working on this message and this is you know we're I'm processing this stuff and we're getting news about Pam I'm like enduring never ending okay here we go why do I have to be the poster child for this we endure and we press in and we keep the faith we can only do that by relying on Jesus that's where we get to Philippians when it says we can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives us strength I can't do any of this on my own if I don't have God, I'm toast. That's the same for all of us. If we don't have God engaged in our lives, we're in trouble. Like he's got to be engaged in our lives. We've got to surrender it all to him. And I would remind you that, to, that what God has started in you personally, at that point that you surrendered your life to him, he's going to complete what he has started. And you're a part of that, though. You can't just be complacent and just wait for him to finish. It's walking with him and engaging in that and growing in your walk and in your faith. It is only when we labor in his strength that we avoid complete weariness. When I, get, when I am the most weary is when I've been trying to power through it on my own, right? When we try to do it, no, I got this. No, I can do this. I can do all the physical thing. I know what... That's when we struggle the most, when we try to power through it. With that, we have to remember what is at the very heart of what we're doing. And we look how quickly the Lord brings correction, even though they were doing so many things well. We get to verse 4, and he says, But I have this against you. You have left your first love. But, or nevertheless, I have this against you. Personally, I don't, I, personally, I don't want to ever hear those words from God to me directly. I have this against you. 
Jesus used a sobering word, nevertheless. It means despite all of that, Jesus took into full account all the good that the Ephesians church did. Yet despite all of that, he had something against them. All the good they had done. It didn't cancel out what Jesus was describing to them next. They left their first love. Left. Not lost. There's a difference. They made a choice to depart from the main reason they were doing all the things that we just talked about. Understanding there's a difference between leaving and losing is so important. We can lose things easily. We lose things all the time. How many of you have ever lost your keys? Cell phone? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Somebody's helping both hands go up. We lose things. Some people even lose a laptop, and we won't say anything about Kiersey doing that. It's an, this is an accident when we lose something. It's unintentional, right? You didn't mean to lose your keys. But leaving, that's intentional. It may not happen right away. It's a gradual thing. When we lose something, we don't know where it's at. But when we leave something, we know where we left it. It's a conscious choice. The church, this church looks so good from the outside appearance. If you and I went to that church, we would have thought, wow, these guys got it all together. It's a happening church. There's solid solid doctrine. They, they do some outreach. They're engaged in the community. They guard the truth. They don't take guff from evildoers. But at the same time, though, if you're a spirit-filled follower of Christ and you walk in those doors... The Holy Spirit might give you that peace, that tugging in your heart, that discernment that says, hmm, something's just a little off here. That's, the, that's what we should be as Christians, as followers of Christ. And I don't mean in a judgmental way. It's just discerning. Lord, is everything okay here? You're not sure exactly what's going on, but it wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem. He saw right to the root of it. And even though everything looked good on the outside, there was a serious problem. And that was with, without love, none of what they're doing matters. It's in vain. Spurgeon says a church with no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold, if you lose love, you lose it all. First John 4, 7 and 8, and it's not in the slides, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love has to be there. The question for you is, are you transformed into the image of Christ? Meaning, are you a reflection? Do you reflect his loving nature through your behavior and through your attitude? When I struggle the most with this is when I'm driving from my house to Presbyterian St. Luke's on the other side of downtown. (laughs) Am I being loving in my nature? I have four-wheel drive, I will run over you. (laughs) No, 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 I love you in the name of Jesus. We all have those struggles, don't we? When you have conversations with people at work or even within your own household, is the love of Christ showing through you? Are you engaging in a way that reflects Christ? Are you truly loving God and loving people? If not, then somewhere along the way, you've, you've made a wrong turn. You've, you've neglected your relationship with God or, or, or you've been disobedient. 
that neglect or disobedience in our lives blocks the flow of the Holy Spirit and removes God's favor from us. We need to be obedient and keep those things in check. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. We need to pray. There's times we all know when we struggle the most, right? We know it. And when we walk into those situations, a lot of times we walk into them without praying before we walk into it. I start praying before I go to Presbyterian St. Luke's. Lord, would you just give me peace? And would you help me to be the Christian man that you want me to be? And would you just help everybody else to not be dumb? And... Right? So literally pray over those things that we struggle with. Do we do that? We have to pause. What love did they leave? As Christians, we're told to love God and love one another. That's the premise of our church, right? You walk into the foyer and you see that on the wall. Love God, love each other, make disciples. woo looks good, doesn't it? Are we really doing it? Did these folks, did they leave their love for God? Or did they leave their love for for one another. Well, probably both in mind here. The, the, both of them go together. You, you can't say that you love God but not love his family. And you can't really love his family without loving him first. So here we have the Ephesians church. It was a working church, a, a works-based church. You know, we're doing all the right things. We're going through all the right motions. We got all this stuff in place. Sometimes a focus on working for Jesus will eclipse a love relationship with him. Thinking that we're doing the right thing, yet we can miss the mark as well. And I was a youth pastor years ago, um, kind of got into that habit of, you know, we make this youth room and it's, it's just hopping. You know, we got 32 TVs donated from uh, DU and we have all these games and all this stuff and all the great equipment for the, the platform and the stage and you know, get done with all this, all the new fresh paint and all the different colors and a concession stand. And, and I'm praying one day and I'm walking down the hall and like, ah, we got this thing done. It's so cool, you know. And God's like, yeah, how do you like your whitewashed tomb? Oh, wait a minute. What is at the heart of, of what we're doing? And it wasn't that those were bad things to have for a youth ministry. But what was I really trying to accomplish? Right, we can miss the mark thinking we're doing the right thing, but if our heart is not in tune with what God wants us to do, then we can miss it. The Ephesians church was doctrinally pure. Sometimes a doctrinal purity can make a congregation cold and suspicious and intolerant of diversity. Spurgeon says, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formulism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry the sweetness of the light of Jesus departs. 
Remember, we've talked about it before, that holy arrogance. No, we've got the right thing here. We're doing the right thing. We are doctrinally pure. We're doing it the right way. You guys are doing it the wrong way. No, God doesn't want us that way either. The first love, there's a, a definite, sure difference in their relationship with Jesus. Things are not as they used to be. It isn't that we expect that we should have the same exact excitement we had when everything was brand new in our Christian life, but that newness should transition into a depth that makes that first love even stronger. Even stronger. A couple that's been married for a long time doesn't always have the same thrill and excitement they had when they first dated. But that's to be expected, and it's fine as long as that excitement has matured into a depth of love that makes it even better than that first love. Like there's more to it. I often ask, and we had one of our couples that I'm doing premarital counseling in first service, and I, I always ask, how deep do you love? How deep is that love? What does it look like? <clears throat> what is better for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death shall you part look like? How deep is your love? See, marriage is a covenant to love deeply, good times and bad. It's to love deeply. It can't just be the surface. How deep do we love? There's nothing wrong with that initial excitement and wanting to remain or, or, or to be restored when they're there. When we're in our first love, what we would do for Christ, now how little we do. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians and but just converted, we look back now upon them and, and seem like, wow, that was just a, a wild time, wasn't it? And the kind of idle tales of, wow, what I used to be. Remember when we used to go evangelizing? Remember when we got kicked out of the mall for talking about Jesus? Remember? Where does that go? We had a gal uh, when I was doing youth ministry, you know, and they're just passionate. Let me back up a little bit. So we, as we were building that foundation for youth ministry, the first time I was hired as a youth pastor, we focused on evangelism. We focused on encouraging the kids to share their faith. And built a lot on that. And there was nothing, 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 nothing. And then all of a sudden, a couple of kids started grabbing that. Pretty soon they're going to school and they're telling their friends about Jesus and they're bringing them to church. And we had Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, we always had salvations. Like we didn't miss. Every Wednesday and every Sunday, kids were giving their lives to the Lord. And it was powerful. We had this one girl in particular, just was bananas for Jesus. <laughs> Everywhere she went, she's telling somebody they need to know Jesus and why. And she was bringing kids left and right, just bringing them to church, bringing them to church, bringing them to church. That passion, that fire. And then gradually, right, kind of settle a little bit and we kind of stop doing that. And I watched her kind of wane in that as well. What happens to that passion? What, what happens to that that desire, we need that passion. It has the hope changed? Has the gospel message changed? When I'm a mature Christian now, I don't go street witnessing. Okay, but do you talk to your coworker? Are you sharing your faith with your family member who's not saved? I have family members that aren't saved. The only time I get to really tell them about Jesus when they invite me to is when I'm doing a funeral for the family. Guess what they're gonna hear? <laughs> all about Jesus. Look for those opportunities. 
Now Jesus instructs the church on what to do in verses 5 and 6. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you have fallen. You guys remember where you came from? You remember what you did before Jesus? Do you remember what you did when you surrendered your life to Jesus? The first step in restoration for the Ephesians church is for them to remember They need to remember from where they have fallen, remembering what they used to be. We're we're stepping that forward. Where did you used to be when you first started as a church, when you were first believers meeting together, when you first were together loving the Lord and serving the Lord? Do you remember that? Do you remember that passion? In Luke 15, when the prodigal son was in, in the pig pen, the first step in his restoration, he's in that pig pen and he's remembering what life was like when he's back home. Oh man, when I was at home, we had you know steak for dinner and potatoes and breakfast burritos. It was just an awesome place. He's remembering how good life really was. And that was that first step for him to get back to home. That should be our first step as well, to get back with the Lord. Remember where you were when you first surrendered your life. You know, and I've told you, my, you guys know, most of you know my testimony. I remember where my knees hit the floor at Calvary Temple in the back on the right-hand side. I could take you right there. And the message was about James chapter four. God opposes the proud, gives the humble. I remember. I remember that change that happened in my heart and in my life. And I was never the same from that point on. Remember where you came from. Repent. It's, it's not a command to feel sorry. A lot of people think that you repent is, well, I got caught, so I'm sorry I did that. And it's, it's not a feeling. It means that you're going to change your direction. It means if you repent, you're going to go a different way. It's an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it's too late. Repent for the kingdom of God draweth nigh. Right? We've heard John the Baptist. Repent. Turn should be an urgent calling in each of our lives. Do the deeds you first did. It means that they must go back to the basics, the very first things they did when they first fell in love with Jesus. And these are the things that we never grow beyond. A lot of times when I do discipleship, I do the same thing. I take them to the book of John. We keep it very basic. What's the basics? For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, right? The basics, the ABCs of Christianity. We sing all these cool worship, sing hallelujah. I love that song. But what about Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Like what are the most important things? Go back to the basics of your faith. We're the ones that change things and mess things up because we get so theological, right? Go to the basics. What does God's word say? Adhere to that. For you and I this morning, what are the first works? Go back to how you used to spend time in the Word. Remember that time where you were in the Word every day and you just, man, you could hear from God and He was speaking to you through His Word? Go back to that. Prioritize God's Word. Remember how you used to pray? Well, now you're too busy. I I can't, I don't have time to pray for an hour. No, no, no. Pause. Go pray. Remember the joy that you had in getting together with other Christians, having fellowship? talking about the Lord and talking about life and laughter. We did that last night with some of our servants 
that are here in the church who had a potluck and just ate food and laughed because fellowship is spelt F-O-O-D. And we laugh together. Be intentional with those relationships because we need each other. Remember how excited you were about telling others about Jesus and that change that happened in your life. Go back to that passion for the Lord and pray that that God restores that passion. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how in the book of Peter how Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy and we might say that Satan does a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with these first works. He wants to frustrate us within these things. Christians are run after almost every new strange method or program for growth and stability. That's why we're not a church of programs. And we have things that we do for children's ministry and young adults and youth, but, but not in a programmed sense. Everything focuses on God's word. But the reality is that our shortened attention spans make us easily bored with the truest of excitement. Sometimes we'll do almost anything except the first works. There are so many self-help books out there. Prayerfully, you haven't bought any of them. I have one. It's called The Bible. We'll come back to that in a second. But I Googled self-help books. And I didn't even try to look at the results. I didn't really care. But there were four and a half billion results of self-help. Self-help related everything. Self-help. Even as Christians, we tend to look at everything but God's word for true help. I'm challenging you and exhorting you to simply open up God's word. And I guarantee you'll get all the help that you need. He will meet you at your point of need. There is nothing you're going through that can't be addressed within God's word. He says, or else I'm coming. Take care of these things or I'm coming to remove the lampstand out of its place. Jesus gave them a stern warning. Unless they repent, he's gonna remove their light and his presence. And when their lampstand was removed, they could continue as an organization, but no longer as the true church of Jesus Christ. We have those churches in our community. It would be the church of Ichabod where the glory had departed in 1 Samuel 4. Without Christ at the center of everything we do, we've got nothing. It all points to Jesus. It all points to that cross. <laughs> what he did on the cross for us. Apparently, at least in short term, the Ephesians, Ephesians uh, in, heeded this warning. And early in the second century, um, not too long after John wrote this, Ignatius praised the love of the doctrinal purity of the Ephesians. He wrote, uh, you who are of the most holy church of Ephesians, which is famous and celebrated throughout the world, you being full of the Holy Spirit, do not according to the flesh, but all things according to the Spirit, you are complete in Christ Jesus. You could see that they had responded from when he said the, the Ephesians returned to their first love without compromising doctrinal purity. That isn't always an easy balance to keep, but the Ephesians apparently kept it, at least for a time. Then in verse 6, you, yet this you do have, that I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus probably, so the Ephesians would not feel too discouraged because he just really just wrapped them on the knuckles, right? Disciplined them. He gave them a compliment. And they were complimented because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are they? What are their deeds? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, 
is condemned in Revelation 2.15. And the passage is related to immorality and idolatry. They were agnostic. There's extra historical texts that show that, that they were troublemakers. They started out good with Nicholas, one of the deacons uh, that had been appointed, and, and they got off course. And, and he said he had hidden mysteries, and they went in this whole different course that changed the shape and the direction of the church. Barclay said that the Nicolaitans were like all deceivers that come from the body of Christ. They claim not that they were destroying Christianity, but they were presenting an improved and modernized version of that. We see that in our society today, don't we? Oh, no, no, we're going to do it this way. We've got this new and improved method to proclaim God's word. And he says, which I also hate. And these are powerful words. They came from our Savior, who is rich in love, Whoever exactly the Nicolaitans are and whatever exactly they did and what they taught, we learn something from Jesus' opinion of them. We learn that the God of love hates sin. He wants his people to hate sin as well. So the question for you, do you hate sin? It's easy for us to hate sin in others, isn't it? Right? When, I, when we talked about me coming back from the hospital when Pam was there, it was during Gay Pride Month, and I'm driving through the middle of all the mess downtown. It's easy for us to hate the sin that we see around us. But what about in us? Do you hate the sin that is in you, the, the sin that you may struggle with? Do you have that same hate for that? And then we close with an exhortation in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Does anybody in here have an ear? You got two, right? Some of them have hearing aids, but that's okay. As long as you can hear us. We're good. This qualifies everyone, at least everybody who will listen. We may have ears, but are we listening? Do we hear? This letter was not only written to the church in Ephesus in the Apostles' Day, it's written to us and to all Christians throughout the centuries. Jesus is literally saying, listen to me. Pay attention. If you have ears, hear this. And each of these seven letters apply to all the churches. We must hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just one church. These letters, as we work our way through them, each of them, they're meant to speak to you and I as well. If we have an ear, listen, hear, take it in, meditate on it. H.W. Beecher said something kind of funny in this regards. He says that the churches of the land are sprinkled all over with bald-headed old sinners whose hair has been worn off by the constant friction of countless sermons that have been aimed at them and glanced off and hit the man in the pew behind them. Do we have an ear to hear? Are we receiving what God's word says? Make sure that as you open up God's word, as you walk into a church building, as you open up that, that YouTube uh, message or, or podcast, that you are ready to hear what it is that God is saying, what his word is saying. And then there's a reward for the obedience. In the last part of verse 7, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat the tree of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus made his promise to him who overcomes. But, but what does the overcomer overcome? 
We usually think of overcoming in dramatic turns, overcoming a sin and in spiritual warfare. Jesus seems to be speaking of overcoming of their coldness of heart, that love that they lost. The promise for these overcomers was a return to Eden, a restoration, a, an eternal life. It, it meant first in the eternal sense of making it to heaven, which is no small promise to a church that had been threatened with the removal of Jesus' presence. We got nothing if Jesus is not here in the midst of us. It also meant the sense of seeing the effects of the curse rolled back in our own lives and walking in Jesus' redeeming love. Which is in the paradise of God. Originally the word paradise meant garden of delight. Eventually it came to mean the place where God lives. Where God is, is paradise. That's where I want to be. If you have an ear, listen, restore your first love, and you'll eventually spend eternity where God is in paradise. Eternity with the author and creator of the heavens and the earth, the author and creator of everything we know. But you may think that the world is a mess. You may be anxious. You may be fearful of what things look like. The charge is for us to go back to our first love of Christ, to rely on him. Hope is restored when we individually surrender to the Lord. When you think about the faith of a child, they believe and they trust and they don't question or doubt. That's what we need to go back to in our faith of God. I believe and I trust, I'm all in. It starts with us individually surrendering, coming back to that first love, and it grows with unity within the body of Christ because we do that individually and then we walk next to each other side by side strength strength in the body of Christ we cannot keep powering through life without love so easy for us to get grumpy with everything that's going on around us now the joy of the Lord is our strength and people need hope part of the issue that reason I'm sitting my back is having some issues and uh mostly because the muscle structure that I have and working in construction so long, I just power through. Anybody else do that? We just keep going. It hurts. That's all right. Right? Listen to your doctor. He says, if it hurts, don't do that. No. We power through things because we, yes, I can do that. We've got to step back. We can only do that so long before our body says, whoa, you're done. Sit there. It's the same with our faith. We can't just power through. We can't just do the works on a continual basis. It doesn't mean that once in a while, yeah, we don't kind of go through the motions because we're just we're struggling, but that's not where we should be living in our faith. It's to press into what God has for us, and it's to engage. We can't just power through doing all the right things. We need to surrender and lay it down before the Lord. Jesus' words to the believers in Ephesus should challenge all servants of the Lord. It's easy to get caught up in the busyness of ministry and church work and volunteering and not realize our passion for the Lord is cooled. We're no longer propelled into service by love, but by some other selfish or worldly motivation. We may think that God doesn't mind as long as we're outwardly obeying him, but he's the one that looks into our heart and knows and understands what it is we're doing and why. And it hurts him. It violates the greatest commandment in Mark 12. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You see, if you're powering through, you're just using your strength. 
Jesus gave the church in Ephesus time to repent. He gives us that time as well. But every moment that we resist his call to humble ourselves and return to our first love is one more moment that we forfeit love, joy, and peace, those things that he offers us individually. Jesus was so concerned about the church in Ephesus that he dictated a letter to the Apostle John, and he's so concerned about the church of today that he made sure that that letter was preserved in such a way that we could read it, we could study it, and apply it to our lives. Amen? As we close today, I'm going to ask just everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes for a minute. We're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do. Still going to close in prayer. It's kind of a different perspective. Some of you in this room, and maybe even some of you listening online, maybe you need to restore that first love. What does that look like? Maybe it's just been, you know, it's not that you're not really serving the Lord, it's just things aren't as fresh as they used to be. So we're going to start with that first, with everybody's head bowed and eyes closed. If, if that's you, if you would say, man, I, I, need, to, I need to restore that first love, I'm, just, I'm going to ask you to just, just raise your hand up. Just lift it up there. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to do something a little, a little more bolder, shall we say. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you're at. Just stand straight up. It's okay. We're all family here. See, and you're not alone. See, I'm talking with people out in the foyer this morning after first service about this very thing. Because we all have those times where we struggle. And, and, and for us to say, I was even talking with somebody who was like, man, I was up at two o'clock this morning praying about that first love for God. I need that back and I need the love for people. So you, by you standing, you're making that statement to the Lord saying, God, would you restore me? Would you restore that first love? Father God, you see those who have stood. You know their hearts. You know their strengths. You know their weaknesses. You know, you know where they struggle the most. You know what it is in life that has caused them to, to just come, become a little bit cold. So Father, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit and would you reignite that first love? Would you reignite that passion to run after you? to proclaim the hope that they have in you, Father. So Lord, fill them, restore them, renew them, Lord. And every day, Lord, give them that desire to be in your word, to give them that desire to spend time in prayer, give them that desire to share the hope that they have with gentleness and compassion. Speak to them and speak through them. Fill them, Lord, with your Holy Spirit is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're in this room too and you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. Maybe you're listening online. God sent his son from heaven to earth to the cross where he was crucified. He went to the tomb. He was there for three days and he rose again. When he rose again, he went to heaven where he's with the Father right now. It's because of that action, we go back to that word that we had that's, that's repent. That gives us the opportunity to repent, to, to ask for forgiveness and to turn from those things that we've been doing. God's word says that if you, uh, 
if you confess and believe that you you will be saved, you, you, you can have that relationship restored with God the Father. And that's something for any of us, all of us. So I would encourage you, if you haven't had that conversation with God, I would encourage you to have that conversation. This is a conversation from your heart to his heart. You don't even have to repeat anything I say. You can just say that, God, I believe. Forgive my unbelief. I believe you rose from the dead, Jesus. I believe in you, and I need you to be Lord of my life. It's that simple. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the freedom we have in Christ for our daily lives. And I thank you for the gift of salvation, that that chance that we have with a restored relationship with God the Father. We thank you for the power of your word and that it applies to our lives every day. That it's timeless and it's life-giving. We thank you for this morning, for the letter to Ephesus, the, the exhortation for all the good things that they were doing, but then that call of accountability to, to return to their first love, to remember why they were doing those good things. So Lord, may we not just hear these words today, but may we truly apply them to our lives. So Lord, for all of us, would you give us all fresh vision for life and passion to run after the vision that you give us as the Holy Spirit leads. Help us to live a life with intentionality, with our eyes expectantly heavenward looking to you. And Lord, those that don't know you, would you draw them into relationship with you? You tell us in your word that if we confess and believe, we'll be saved. So I pray, Father, that those who need you will indeed do that. They will confess and believe this morning that they'll have that conversation with you. So Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. And we thank you that you love us enough to restore us and to help us have that first love. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.